We are going through a series called The Monarchy of Misfits. It started out, I was going to go through First and Second Samuel. I was going to teach through First and Second Kings. I had this big plan, and it's just been moving pretty slow. There is a lot happening in First Samuel. And so we're going to be in First Samuel through Christmas time, and then we're going to switch into gears for Christmas, and we'll figure out next year later. But we've been talking about the first two kings of Israel. Most of the time, we've been talking about Saul. Uh, last week in our small groups, we transitioned to David. David a little bit. We're going to talk a bit more about David tonight because this is the story that everybody knows. Whether you've been to church your whole life, never to church before in your life, this is the story. David versus Goliath. Everybody knows it. It's a kid's favorite. There's drama. There's excitement. We have all these cultural references. You know, you watch the NCAA tournament, right? And it's a David and Goliath story. And we, we all know exactly what that means. And I'll just start with the truth tonight. For me, it's easier as a preacher to teach the difficult texts. Like two weeks ago when we talked about God killing the women and children. As tough as that is, um, everybody avoids it, but, but at least nobody knew the story and it gave me something to, to teach. These familiar stories, they're so familiar. We all think we know what the point of the story is and it just makes it incredibly tough to teach because we are blinded by our familiarity to the story. I don't know if anybody's read Malcolm Gladwell, who is one of my favorite kind of secular authors. He wrote a book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. It's very popular in the business world because it's, it's a way of thinking about business and, and taking over giants and being the little guy and all of that stuff. So, so that's a popular kind of pop culture reference right now to David and Goliath. I looked up this week, I'm like, well, what are other preachers preaching when they go through David and Goliath? And so I just went to one of these websites that have a bunch of sermons posted and looked at titles. Um, winning the battle against your giants, that was the theme of one or the title. One was how to kill a giant, which is, was, you know, a bunch of them titled that. My favorite was some giants need a killing, which is probably from where I grew up, somebody preached that one. Then there's this, uh, just like a, a whole bunch of people, they do this series, and it's different names, but it's like the five stones of David. You know, David, if you don't know, he puts five stones in his, his sling and, you know, throws it and hits Goliath. Um, but basically, these sermons go like this, like these are the five stones that every Christian needs to carry in our sling. And so they would do like trust and obedience and courage and, you know, whatever things they wanted to talk about that day, the five stones. And they would end, you know, and with these stones, you too can kill the giant. Of course, David kills Goliath with the first stone, so I don't know how that reference works for the other four stones. Perhaps you start at the last one and you work your way towards the one that kills Goliath. But what's this story about? That's the question tonight. What's this story about? What are we supposed to learn? I mean, it's included in Scripture. What are we supposed to learn? Why is it included? Is it a guide for us to overcome the obstacles in life? Is it an uplifting underdog story, or is there more happening? This last week, Tanya and I, who did the announcements, we were talking, and she said, this first Samuel thing is like a great big soap opera, uh, and it kind of reads like that. She said, so it may be a little tough for new people who are visiting to just jump into the middle of this series, because there's a lot happening in this soap opera. So before we get to the story tonight, let's do a previously on the monarchy of misfits, you know, the, the preview of it. 
started out Israel as a theocracy. That simply means that the only king that they had, the only authority that they had was God as their king. But they decide as a people they want a king. And God says, that's a bad idea, but he eventually says, okay. He tells Samuel, who is a prophet, um, go name this guy Saul as king. And so Saul is set apart. He's dedicated as the king. Saul is tall, dark, and handsome. Head and shoulders above everyone else, we're told, and so he's everything that a king should be. But he continually makes PLCs. If you've been here any length of time, you know what that means. It's not Presley Lynn Culbertson, my daughter, but it's poor life choices. <laughs> he makes a lot of poor life choices. He rushes forward when he should have patience. He's inactive when he should move. And eventually he loses the trust of his people. He loses God's approval. And he loses his will to be king, and eventually he loses his will to even live. Last week in your community groups, chapter 16 that we talked about was a peek behind the curtain. It was the secret anointing of the future king, a shepherd boy named David. But to this point in the story, that is not public knowledge. If you weren't here, David is the youngest of seven brothers. There's nothing necessarily king about him. But we're told in that chapter, verse 7, don't judge uh, by his appearance or height. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I asked everybody last week to pick their favorite verse, and that was a lot of them for a lot of you. And so tonight, we're going to be in chapter 17. I'm going to skip a few verses, but for the most part, we're just going to read verse by verse through this story. I know a lot of you are reading along, and nearly all of you who are uh, part of this church have been reading along, so I think that's awesome that we are a church reading the Bible together, so thank you. And we're going to pick up in verse 1. I'll be using the New Living Translation, and it begins like this. The Philistines, which were a perennial problem for Israel, the Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Soka in Judah, and Azekah in Ephes Damon. Now, these hard-to-pronounce names, remember I said, they're not just there for filler, they are important. If you look it up, this area is like 12 miles just west of Bethlehem, which is Israeli territory, and so the Philistines are now encroaching upon Israeli land and territory, which means the Israelite kingdom, which is a very loose definition even at this point, their very kingdom, though, is being eroded taken away by the Philistines. So that's where we're at in the story. Verse 2, it says, Saul countered by gathering his troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. And so the writer is setting up the scene. You've got a pagan nation versus the nation of God. And they're standing on opposite hills. And so you have one nation over here, one nation on this hill, and this valley of Elah between them. Verse 4 says, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. Champion. I want you to remember that word tonight, champion. It's an important word in this story. The literal translation of that word means the man in the between. The man in the between is the champion. In other words, he's the one that fights on behalf of others. We're told in verse 4, this Goliath was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and a bronze coat that weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. Now, I don't know if you read that. I'm like, is he really nine feet tall? Because that's really tall. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, some translations have him as six foot nine. Some have him as nine feet tall. We don't know. All we know is he is a giant. <laughs> he is huge. And so we're supposed to read this, and we're supposed to see this nine foot tall guy with all this armor and a javelin and a spear, and we're supposed to say, wow, what a scary guy. Verse 7, the shaft of his spear was heavy and thick, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. Spearhead, right? The tip of his, his spear was 15 pounds. I don't know if you go to the gym, but 15 pounds is, you know, I do flies generally. It's, I know it's embarrassing, but I do flies with 15 pounds. Scott does pinky curls with 15 pounds, but it's still pretty heavy. And it says his armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I'm the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. It's kind of an awkward translation there. I don't know if you get what it's saying, but essentially what Goliath is saying is, why do you keep showing up here every day like you're planning to fight, but you never fight? And so if you're not going to fight, why do you even bother showing up? We read this story, and of course, we want to be David, right? In the story, we want to be the hero. I'll speak for myself. More often than not, I am the soldiers. I take my position. I put on my helmet. I stand on a hilltop looking down at the battlefield, never entering the fight. Listen to a podcast this week. It's called Nice White Parents. I think there's seven or eight episodes if anybody's uh, listened to it. It's pretty good. Uh, it's basically about education and the school systems and what gets in the way today of building a better um, school system for everyone so that everyone has a good school system. But the episode I listened to it was about 1960s integration, you know, right after Brown versus Board of Education. And they go to New York City, and they're interviewing people, and they're talking about the integration of their schools in New York City. And all the people, the, the board administrators, the, the people that live there, the parents, they all said, we are all about integration. And so they made these, like, videos to show how much they were in favor of integration. And, and the camera cuts to, they, they played it, it cuts to a white kid. And the white kid is like, you know, I love this school because of this. And we have so many different people. And then it cuts to a, a black girl. And she says how much she loves being around so many people. And they go to a Puerto Rican kid. And they go to a J Japanese girl. And they're all saying that, you know, it's this classroom. And there's just all people together loving each other and, and being taught together. Um, saying that um, essentially the, the school system was saying that we agree with Brown versus Board of Education. We want to integrate our school. At the same time, they're also saying, you know who doesn't believe in it, who has a problem with it? It's those people in the South. It's the ignorant racist. And so essentially, New York City, by making these videos and showing this stuff, they were bragging about their superiority over the South. That was part of it. That's the story they were telling. We're all about integration. But the reality was they were taking a position. They were dressing apart. They were standing on a hilltop looking down at the battle. But they never got down into the battlefield to fight that would actually give equality and change. In the decades that followed that video being made and all the propaganda, you could walk into any New York City school in a black neighborhood. The conditions were terrible. No running water in the bathroom, just, just terrible integration. And they were not integrated. The black kids stayed in the black schools, the Hispanic kids in those neighborhoods. And it was amazing, too, in the story, there were all these white parents that they interviewed, and um, they had written and said, hey, we are all about integration. 
That's what they said with their mouths, but it just so happened at the same time to be an explosion of white private schools that all of them could send their kids to. And so they said one thing with their mouth, but their actions were something different. That's how the world often sees us as the church. We are soldiers in God's army, and we show up week after week to our buildings, to our hilltops, and we put on the armor of God, never getting down into the trenches to fight the battles with the hurting and the broken and those who are still excluded. So maybe that's the point of this story tonight, that I need to stop playing Christian soldier. I need to get down off of my hill, into the valley, And fight. Fight for injustice. Fight to battle my sin. Fight for my marriage. Fight for whatever I need to fight for. Maybe that's the point of the story tonight. Verse 8, it says, choose one man. This is Goliath speaking. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. This might sound like a weird way to fight. Uh, Maybe it's a squid game type concept or something happening here. But in ancient warfare, this was a tradition and pretty common. It was called single combat. It was a way to settle disputes without incurring major bloodshed. And so it was essentially our best against your best, winner take all. Verse 11 says, when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Goliath is nine feet tall. He's outfitted head to toe in armor. He's got a spear the size of a telephone pole. He looks terrifying. Who should be the one that steps up? Better call Saul. (laughs) He's the king. He's the military leader. We were told he stands head and shoulders above all the people. He is the obvious choice and he is the expected choice. Story could have went down in all of history, not David versus Goliath, but Saul versus Goliath. But as we've learned in this series, the moment things get tough, Saul checks out. And so maybe that's the point of the story. Don't bail when the battle looks difficult. Don't bail on your marriage just because it's hard. Get in and fight for it. Don't bail on your sobriety when it gets hard. Hang in there and find some brothers and sisters to fight with you. Don't deconstruct your faith just because you have doubts. Open up your Bible in your mind and put in the work and fight. Maybe that's the point of the story. Verse 12, now David was the son of a man named Jesse. We just switch gears here. It's like, meanwhile, back on the farm, and we're reintroduced to David. Uh, Jesse was an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Verse 13, Jesse's three oldest sons had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. But David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. A lot of times with this story, we can zoom into the battle and we can miss a lot of the great details. Maybe the point of this story is that battles are won and lost before they're ever fought. Went to see a soccer game with my youngest daughter this week in Orlando, my first professional soccer game. I have watched soccer for many years at the Gateway Soccer Fields with my daughters. What I saw on Wednesday looked nothing like what I see every Saturday morning. Those guys were amazing. I mean, I told Emery, I'm like, it looks like they are dancing with the ball. It was like art, watching them move the ball around the soccer field. But those professional paid soccer players made it onto that field because of planning, because of preparation. They were the first guys to practice. They were the last one to leave. 
The game we watched that night was won or lost by how each team prepared for battle. It ended in a tie, by the way, which is one of the reasons us Americans seem to not be able to watch soccer. That seems silly. Somebody should win. Somebody should lose. But the thing is, we want the glory, but we're not willing to endure the grind. Maybe that's the story here. We want career advancement, but a lot of times we don't want to endure the daily and the consistent grind of the work. We want a bank account so that we can retire at some point in life, but we don't want to take the grind and the sacrifice that it takes to grow it. I read a thing this week Dave Ramsey posted. He said, a third of all millionaires never made a six-figure income at any point in their career. It is the grind of savings and sacrifice. We want the benefits of community within the church. It's what we want, but we're not willing to endure the grind. A Gallup study that also came out this week, it says due to the grind of the pandemic or politics or deconstruction or justice debates or mass policies or vaccines, all that grind, people have left the church more than ever. Knowing that history has shown over the long term a churchless Christian spiritual health does not fare well. But we don't want to endure the grind even though we want the benefits of community. Spoiler alert that David is going to kill Goliath. I hope you know this. And he does so with a stone and uh, a sling. Where do you think he got those skills to be able to throw that stone and that sling? He got them in his boring, mundane grind of a job as a shepherd. Every day just standing around, watching the flies circle the sheep, the hot sun. Somewhere on those long, hot, grinding days... David used his time to get really good at throwing rocks and hitting targets. And so again, maybe that's the story. We need to endure the grind. We need to redeem the mundane so that when the battle comes, we're ready. Verse 17, one day Jesse said to David, his son, take this basket of grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers. See how they're doing and bring back a report. Throughout 1 Samuel, it's all this, it just so happened. God's providence is throughout this story. It just so happened that David is sent off at just the right moment. He arrives at camp at just the right moment to find his brothers at just the right moment. Standing there in fear, David begins to wonder what is going on. Why are they so fearful? And at that precise moment, it just so happens, verse 23, the Goliath came out from the Philistine ranks then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. Verse 26, David asked the soldier standing nearby, who is this pagan Philistine anyway, that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. First time we hear David speak in all of scripture was right there. And he's the first person in this entire story that mentions God and sees this challenge as a challenge directed at his God. Do you think David is afraid of the giant? Probably. I would imagine that he would be afraid of this giant. But instead of allowing his fear to paralyze his faith like these soldiers have, he allows that fear to then propel him. And so maybe, maybe that's the story. That we'll never do anything great for God if all we think about are all the things that can go wrong or all the things that will keep it from going right. The soldiers had already written this story out. They're like, he's a giant. If I go down into that valley, that 15-pound spear tip is going to be the end of me. They've already written the story. 
Karen used to do this thing with me because I have a tendency to do that from time to time. And I'd be telling her, you know, something we thought God wanted us to do or that we needed to do as a family or whatever. And I would start um, telling her all the things that were going to go wrong. I would catastrophize, you know, the worst possible case scenarios and outcomes. And she said, okay, let's do that. And she said, what's going to happen? And I'd say, I don't know. It's probably not going to work out. And she'd say, okay, so what? I'm like, well, then people will say, see, I knew that wasn't going to work. Brian's an idiot. And she'd say, okay, so what? I don't know. I'd feel like a failure. It's going to be embarrassing. And she'd say, okay, so what? Is that what God will see of you? I'd say, no. Will you lose God's love? I would say, no. She was taking it to its conclusion. And so you might say, what if I get sober? And then two years later, I relapse. Okay. What if I start a small group and nobody shows up? Okay. What if I give uh, 10% of my salary to the church and then I realize I just can't afford to do that? Okay. What if I start an adoption and I get halfway in and I can't raise the funds? Okay. David got it. I serve a living God. That means regardless of the outcome, I cannot fail. See, everybody else around him was looking at the biology of Goliath. He's so big and we're so small. David is looking at theology. He is so big, but my God is so much bigger. Verse 28, but when David's oldest brother heard David talking to the man, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway? What about those sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Maybe the story tonight is don't allow the critics to keep you from your calling. David is like, man, this, this is a problem. We need to fight this injustice. We need to take a stand for God. And immediately his own brother becomes a critic. Don't be surprised if you take a leap of faith and you quickly take on friendly fire from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Gossip, negativity, criticism being called a heretic and leading people to hell. True story. It's been told to me. <laughs> Thanks, Robert. <laughs> he knows. I'll send you all the email if you want to see it. <laughs> Verse 32, it says, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fighting. It's a very poetic moment. The future king is telling the current king, I'm going to go fight this battle. Verse 33, Saul replies, don't be ridiculous. There's no way that you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. Saul's just like, here's all the reasons it's not going to work. If you haven't thought them through yourself, let me tell you all the reasons this is not going to work. See, Saul thinks he needs a bigger giant to kill this giant, but David persists in verse 34. He says, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he says. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club, and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for, and this is so important, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord God be with you. Saul finally mentions God, but it's more like one of those Christian, I'll be praying for you. Bless your heart. And so after this, there's the famous scene. I won't read it to you because we don't have the time, but Saul gives his armor to David. And, you know, it's, I don't think it's like the story we've all seen where there's this little David and, you know, the big armor on top. Maybe. It's, it's not really like that, but it just says it's not comfortable. He's never worn it before. He's not comfortable in it. Plus, he has a different plan in mind, and he doesn't need the armor, so he takes it off. 
And then I'm just going to read to you the story that we all know and love now, verse 40. It says, David picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed with only his shepherd's staff and a sling, so he's got his staff and he's got a sling, he starts across the valley to fight. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt of this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick. Verse 45, David replied, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Verse 48, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone. He hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. And we'll end with verse 50. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath, and David used it to kill him and cut off his head. We'll end there, but maybe, maybe that's what this is. It's the greatest underdog story ever told. Maybe that's what this story is about, about the little guy triumphing over the giant. Let me ask you a question. What's stronger for you, the desire to root for the underdog or the desire to be on the winning team? It's one of those contradictions that we never fully think out. The underdog, rooting for them, it's kind of the romantic position. Again, the NCAA tournament, when we got no skin in the game, we love rooting for that 15 and 16 seed to take down the one or the two seed. And we see them win, and we just love it because it gives us hope that the little guy has a chance. It feels good to cheer against the giant, that evil giant. That is until we are the giant. Guarantee the Alabama and Ohio State fans in the room, they're not rooting for the underdog today. I don't know if the games have ended yet, but they weren't rooting for the underdogs in those games. And so we're like this. I mean, if I can be in the position of power, then that's what I want. That's where I'm going to put my faith. But if not, then I'm going to root for the underdog. It's our fallback position. It's one point. But the second point is, is David really an underdog in this story? And you might say, yeah, I mean, Goliath is a giant. He's covered in armor. He's got a sword. He's got a spear. He's got a shield. David has no armor. He's small. He's inexperienced as a soldier. All he has is a slingshot and some rocks. In ancient warfare, there were three kinds of warriors. There was the cavalry. These were the men on horseback or driving chariots. There was the heavy infantry. That's the foot soldiers. That's what Goliath is. They have on the armor. They have the sword. They have the shields. And then you had the third group, the artillery. They were the archers, yes, bow and arrows, but they were also slingers. A slinger is someone with a leather pouch with two long cords attached to it. They put a projectile in that leather pouch, and so they're twirling it around like this, and they send it towards a target. And so this isn't, you know, a little slingshot like this. It's not a child's toy. When David swings this around as fast as he can, six, seven, eight revolutions per second, and when it comes out, it's going as fast as a fast-pitched baseball in the major leagues. More than that, the stones in this particular valley are not normal rocks. They're barium sulfate, twice the density of a normal stone. And so some nerds have done the calculations on the ballistics 
concluding that the stone coming out of David's sling is roughly equal to that of a 45 caliber handgun. And these slingers could hit a target that was 200 yards away. David is this close to Goliath. When David says to Saul he wants to fight Goliath, Saul assumes he meant hand-to-hand combat. That's why he gives him the armor. But David had no expectation of fighting him this way. That'd be dumb. He's a shepherd. He spent his whole life being a slinger to defend his flock, and he is exceptionally proficient. One point. Let's think about the giant now for a moment, Goliath. There's some clues in this story that he's not as scary as we might think. Have you met any nine-foot-tall people? Probably haven't, but if you had, you would know they don't move very fast, especially with 130 pounds worth of gear strapped to their body carrying a giant spear with a 15-pound weight at the end. There's some points in the story. He's so big, twice we're told he has to be led down into the valley by a handler. It's like Mickey Mouse at Disney World being walked around by a handler. He's so big, he can't get there on his own. There's an article I found. It was written in the 1960s by the Indiana Medical Journal. I don't know if you can trust those Hoosiers or not. But it speculated the reason Goliath is so big is he has a form of giantism. You remember the, the Guinness Book of World Records we had as a kick? And there's that eight foot tall, 11, I think he's eight foot 11 inches tall, Robert Waldo. That's what he had. He lived to be 24 because you just don't live very long with that condition. Andre the Giant, we're told, had that condition. And they just sort of kind of slow moving and, and slow in, in all their actions. And so the giant, the very thing that gave them their size was also the source of their weakness. And so think, it's sure Shaq can dunk on Spud Webb if you know who those two guys are. But how's he going to dribble the ball? How's he going to get to the basket in the first place to dunk around a much smaller and more agile player? And so the Israelites are standing up on the mountain, and they're looking at this giant. And they think, he's so big, he's going to kill us all. David looks at this man, this giant of a man, covered in heavy armor, and thinks, he's so big, I can't miss that big fat head. And so there it is. That's the story, right? Giants aren't as strong and powerful as they seem. Is that the point? Not quite. But we're getting close. We're on the right track here. Remember that word I told you to remember? Champion? The man in the between? I say this all the time when I teach. The Bible isn't a bunch of little stories. It's one single big story. And a story not about what we need to do, but a story about what's been done for us by a champion. It's not primarily about our transformation, though there is plenty about transforming our lives, but it's about Jesus as our substitution. All the themes, all the things I said, maybe this is the point of the story, all those things are good. They're all biblical ideas. They're grounded in theology and doctrine. But if all we see in this story is, if it's the bee, it's up to me, Well, we can get that any afternoon from guys named Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil. If we read the Bible as purely self-help that creates narcissistic Christians, narcissists lack empathy for others, narcissists wallow in their storms instead of looking outside of themselves for hope. There's nothing more enslaving than self-salvation. The good news of the Bible 
And the point of this story is that it's not all riding on my shoulders. It's riding on the shoulders of a champion who became the man in the between. Goliath is the personification of evil in this story. It's the personification of a giant we all created called sin. And it is a giant that we cannot beat. Try all we want, we're going to lose. But we have a champion. We have a greater David. We have a king who would stand between in single combat against the enemy. Winner take all. God's best against Satan's best. And our champion, he looks weak. He looks like the underdog of all underdogs. Isaiah says there was nothing beautiful or majestic about him, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like a lamb led to the slaughter, crushed for our sins, beaten so we could be made whole, whipped so we could be healed. But he was never the underdog because he's God in the flesh. And he had a perfect plan for how to defeat the giant. On the cross, Jesus defeated the giant of sin. And because he walked out of the tomb, we know he crushed the giant of death as well. And so our giants in life are going to come at us with swords, and they're going to come at us with spears, and they're going to come at us with javelins, but we come in the name of a champion named Jesus. That's the story. And that Jesus gives us the confidence then to get off of our hills and get down into the valley and fight our sin and fight for the least of these. That Jesus, our champion, helps us endure the grind. He helps us redeem the mundane. That Jesus' victory allows our fear to propel our faith because we already know how the story ends. We don't have to catastrophize. With Jesus, we can deal with those critics. We can deal with the negativity. Our champion keeps success from going to our heads and failure from going to our hearts, which means then that we can step out in faith and be champions, be the one in between for others as they battle their giant. The message tonight is not be like David. The message is in Jesus, we have a perfect David, a champion who's already triumphed in the valley of our greatest battles. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this story and the lessons that we can pull from it. But God, never let us forget the most important lesson, that we have a champion who looked weak, who rode into town on a donkey, was beaten, was taken to a cross, and it looked like he was going to lose. But on that cross, he gave us victory. God, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you give into our lives because of that victory. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.